what I really found is the whole basis for us to be able to do anything well, and I mean anything, not just can I be more emotionally intelligent or can I be a better leader, a better dad, a better partner, whatever it is, a better salesperson. It starts with the fundamental capacity to be aware. And where does that come from? Inside, it's intrinsic. Our attention, our awareness is the gold. If we can harness it and connect with it in a way that's intentional. Welcome to Your Next Big Project Is You, a podcast based around the theme of time. Time to be able to press pause on life. Time to reevaluate what's important. Time to reminisce about where you've come from, what you've learned, and what you've accomplished. Time to revisit your goals, dreams, and vision. And time to remember the people in your life. That's it, my friends. If you've got time, fasten your seatbelt and listen in as we discuss opportunities for the next five to 25 years of your life. And remember, your next big project is you. Welcome to our podcast. Your next big project is you. And I have a special guest today, uh, Michelle Navarez, who's the author of Beyond Emotional Intelligence. And I had the pleasure to meet. We have a mutual client. And it's funny how life brings us, you know, people together, Michelle. Yeah. You know, it was like a gift because as I'm meeting you and listening to our client and watching you present on stage, I didn't want it to stop because you were you're emotionally connecting to me through your words. It's the expert that you are, is a renowned educator and an expert in leadership concepts and now around the whole concept of emotional intelligence. So thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure and privilege to getting to know you, start reading your book to understand more of the key principles in it. I'm learning a lot and I thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Leo, for having me. It's a real pleasure and it, it was really nice to meet you in person finally and learn who you know, this client relies on to interface with their client care. It was really great to, to see that come together. So thank you for having me today. The, the, the challenge with your book is just, there's so much good content. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going through this thing and I'm, I'm getting in the background and I'm reading about the 12 self discoveries and I'm saying this needs to be like bedside or one of those types of books that you, uh, you, you start articulating your affirmations every day to read one of your discoveries, to read it almost like one a week or one a month. Or really, they're, they're so meaty, Michelle. So yeah. congratulations. I want to get into this with you. Thank um, you. You're really making a difference with your words here. Thank you. It's making me think <clears throat> about a lot of the principles that I've learned over the years as well. But tell, tell us more about the journey. Sure. Um, my gosh, you've been, you've been all over the globe. You've been doing some really cool things. Let's start there. Okay. Thank you, Leo. So, wow. So I, I turned 50 um, in December, this December on the 10th. And so, you know, it's not so much about, for me, the number. It was just sort of this idea that I've been here a meaningful period of time on the planet. And I've experienced such a very rich, full, blessed life. And I think for me, that's the essence of what drives me Um I feel I've been given so many gifts and positive conditions have come together for me. And I feel for that reason that I 
I can only play big. I have to show up to my own life in a way I'm contributing to the community to benefit people at scale, at a really big capacity, because I feel I have that capacity. Yeah. So, you know, for me, the I would say one of the the biggest pieces of my journey has been, you know, where I grew up in Wyoming, in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, there in Montana and Colorado and, you know, being of, um, you know, kind of a mixed uh, family, my I'm Mexican and Danish and Dutch. And back in the 70s, that was kind of taboo, you know, for my mom <laughs> and my dad to, to be together. And my dad died uh, really early when I was a baby. So I was very close to his family. And that Mexican culture and that identity really shaped who I've become in a very positive way. I take a lot of inspiration from my from my family, from my grandparents on both sides, right? So that's one thing. But then we sort of think, okay, where does this Wyoming girl go in the world? And when I was 20, I studied in India. I ironically, just took my daughter, who's 21, to the airport yesterday to go to India for the first time. And it changed my life to go on this Buddhist studies program and learn how powerful the mind is for good or for worse. And so that's really shaped my entire life journey from there, you know, and even through the 25 years of corporate and executive roles, et cetera, that came before what I'm doing now. So those are the, oh. those are the key pieces, Leo. Yeah. You know, I, I got colder just listening to where you grew up um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I'm sitting here in beautiful Buffalo, growing up in Western New York. I think, I think we have some commonality in our background yes. right there. Okay. In our blood, <laughs> right. Cause we do yeah. that. You from Mexican descent, me from Sicilian and in different <laughs> ways, but you got me hit a low when I opened your book up because you know, telling the story of Harriet, your grandmother yeah, and, and what she went through and you, you really made me rewind my own history with my family. Cause I, I knew my grandmothers, I was, you know, young, but I, re, I still remember Sunday Christmas, you know, uh, Sunday meals with grandparents and how yeah. we celebrate our holidays and things. And it was, it was really a poignant story of how you told about your grandmother, the influence to your mom, how your mom grew up. And obviously this permeates, I believe, through your thinking mm -hmm. and it is the baseline foundation of who you are yeah. to do this. So um, is there anything you want to build on, on that in terms of how that shaped your life and your thinking that, that that flows through this book right now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's interesting, mm -hmm. isn't it? We have such rich lives, each of us, and different pieces and contexts in which we are shaped and formed over a lifetime. And so, you know, having a, a grandmother on one side, on my mom's side of the family who suffered from mental illness and and that was, you know, that it was exacerbated by the depression era and having five kids and no money. As she said, I have five kids and no money. How would you feel? She used to have these Harrietisms that she'd say like, you don't have the sense God gave us soda cracker. I mean, all these kind of like funny things she'd whip out. And I, I'd be like, what? What does that mean? Um, but just witnessing her, her struggle and her plight and how she managed really with next to nothing and very little 
sort of means from a mental strength standpoint. And yet she persevered. She lived to 84. And so it caused me to be very curious from early on, why is it that some people have the ability to be resilient and to make the best of a really bad situation, whereas others would maybe have it affect them differently? So I was always quite interested in those differences. And even looking at the Mexican side of my family, which I don't write really much about, that was you know, there were a lot of stories in the book. It was a 400-page book that got edited down, right? So I always say the outtakes will be just as juicy as the part that made it to print. But the Mexican side of my family was super inspiring to me because, you know, my grandparents were migrant farm laborers from Texas. You know, my my grandmother only went to uh, school through the third grade, and my grandfather only went to school through the eighth grade. And yet they worked their way to having, you know, their own farm, their own place, their own, you know, space and identity in a time when that wasn't entirely possible or normalized, right? So I take a lot of inspiration from both sides and that central question of what do we have agency over? What at a fundamental level are we able to influence in our own lives on our own behalf? How can we intervene? And so that's really at the heart of the work I do and the work that we do with our clients. Yeah. Your, your passion for this subject matter is palpable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, um, intoxicating is the more you read your work and you really realize just how fundamentally simple and sound it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the quotes that you use from Churchill to whoever else is in the book, it's just, it's so much right on. Let me ask you this question to start as we get into these. Sure your 12 self-discoveries. I, I grew up, you know, I've been in the sales profession for the last 45 years of my life in the, yeah. in the, in the broad Fortune 500 industry in the United States and then the global wealth management arena. Mm-hmm. And I was always taught, and it's part of my core work of, of how emotions precede logic or businesses yeah. first, a meeting of the hearts and then becomes a meeting of the minds. Then what I saw, Michelle, is the, is the introduction of mindfulness a few years ago uh, in terms of being more present and more curious and, and, and understanding, you know, what other people might be thinking about and just being more open-minded. How, how do you see the difference of mindfulness versus emotional intelligence? Are they one and the same or is one a subset of the other? How do you teach it? That's a great question. I love the question, Leo. So, you know, it's interesting because emotional intelligence has had a definition that's been sort of attached to it over the last 25 years, um, that it's been in the stratosphere, so to say, you know, so uh, Daniel Goleman popularized emotional intelligence. He he wrote about it. He presented it. He presented an excellent business case for it, right? Such that now we don't even question, yes, of course we need emotional intelligence. But what was interesting is when, when we started our work together, this is about six years ago, to, to democratize and bring this work in real terms to people, not just intellectually, right? Because we can all read a book, right? It's so much harder to then embody those things. So as I was really digging into his model in particular, because that was the operative model, um, what I realized is it's such a deep topic. Emotional intelligence is not just one kind of intelligence. And so as I looked at the neuroscience, the research, the practical, how do you do it? What I really found is 
the whole basis for us to be able to do anything well, and I mean anything, not just can I be more emotionally intelligent or can I be a better leader, a better dad, a better partner, whatever it is, a better salesperson. It starts with the fundamental capacity to be aware. And where does that come from? Inside, it's intrinsic. Our attention, our awareness is the gold. If we can harness it and connect with it in a way that's intentional so that we can direct our outcomes, including how we make sense of our emotions and our perceptions, right? So it's not just about can I be skillful with my emotions and skillful with other people's emotions, which is the traditional definition. It's can I be skillful with all of my perceptions of which emotions are sensory based, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's a yeah. very big question in this mindfulness movement. It, it, it's interesting because in many ways, Daniel Goleman was also part of the first wave of that uh, coming into the States along with Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, just to name a few. Okay. And funny enough, they all studied in the sixties and seventies at the same place I went when I was 20, I, I went in the nineties. So, so what they brought was what I think we were capable of uh, connecting with at the time. And now it's more mainstream, but here's the thing, Leo, the work I'm trying to do is to bring greater richness and depth to even that. So in other words, it's not just about self-awareness. Self-awareness is one way of being aware. There are so many other ways of being aware that we can tap into with certain practices that end up yeah. being able to serve us well. So wow. yes, and there's so much more to the story. Well, I, I really appreciate and value the, um, the respect and recognition you give to people who preceded you in the field. Same things happened in my field. It's yeah. folks like you and myself that have been able to learn through the efforts of others. And then as we are evolving and growing and adapting and innovating and dealing with disruptions and things like this, yeah. that we've been able to put our own spin on things. And that's, that's what I believe you've done um, yeah, in, in a remarkable way here with your own book. So congratulations on that. Thank you. you know, some, someone told me on my faculty um, and she said, Leo, the greatest gift I can give you is my attention. Yes. Isn't yes. that another form of what you're talking about in terms of awareness? Totally. Absolutely. You know, the thing is, is that we can place and hold our attention in any number of stances or ways. And so, for example, when we're attending to or listening to we know there are many layers of listening, right? We can, we can listen for the words and their meaning. We can listen for the emotions behind the words or that the words are steeped in. We can listen to what's not being said. And we can listen with our hearts and our bodies and be attentive to what's happening with me as a listener and observing what's happening with the other person as well with their bodily signals and expressions. So that is just listening itself, right? But attention has also the capacity to expand and to be aware of what's going on. So for example, 
like, let's just take um, sports. All right. I, I grew up, I was a gymnast. I skied, I played tennis. I did all these things, right. That were really formative experiences for me in training the attention. And so there are, are many times as an athlete or as a person who's focusing on getting good at a sport where you need to be able to have open awareness, what's going on around me. And then there are times, for example, if you're on the balance beam, you need to know what's going on right in front of you and have that narrowed attention, right? So yeah. these are all different ways of paying attention and training this thing we call our attention or awareness. Yeah, cool. So so how did you come about with the uh, 12 self-discoveries? Uh, yeah. When did when did that tipping point or that light bulb go off in your yeah. in your reading, your lecturing, your traveling, and all yeah. of a sudden these twelve points, <laughs> you know, very precise, you know, yeah, they are. you know, came, came into being. Tell us about that. Sure, sure. So, um, I spent about twenty five years working across industries, investment management, management consulting, healthcare, and in those roles, I coached hundreds of leaders. Um, you know, in various capacities, right? I was the head of HR, um, you know, overseeing multiple, you know, channels of work and functions for organizations. And so what I started to see were patterns of where people would get mentally stuck. Leaders at all levels of the organization um, didn't matter what their title was. They had similar mental habits or patterns that I started discerning. And then I think for me, the clincher was when I myself got coached, you know, here I was coaching all these leaders and I had never been coached. What on earth? So silly, right? That's the cobbler's, you know, children's story, right? So don't have shoes. Yeah. But um, anyway, so when I got coached by my coach, Carla, who I write about in the book, and she actually gives an endorsement on the book, which I'm grateful for, but I realized that I saw these same patterns in myself, like where am I looping? Where are these feedback loops, these stories I'm telling myself, this way I have of making sense of my own reality, not serving me? And how can I flip the script? How can I rewrite the story in the moment? What does that require of me? And so the deeper I dug there, it became very clear to me and these 12 self-discoveries emerged. Now, they're by no means a comprehensive list. They're just the key 12 that I kept seeing again and again, right? And so then fast forward to when I started uh, Beyond EI, we were uh, called Goldman EI before. So originally um, I, I, I worked with Daniel Goldman and his son and we were translating his EI model at the time into a coaching program, which we're relaunching today, actually, after COVID. Uh, we, we've done three cohorts of 200 people. But I realized that at that time, people needed a way to put emotional intelligence into practice. So that's actually when I gave them titles. So I had noticed them, but then I gave them titles so that I could teach them to other people. Yeah. Are they in order? Uh, like, do you need to start with one and then go proceed to two, or does it matter uh -huh. if I'm reading the book and open up and read number eight? Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a great question. Yes and no. They are in a particular order because we just have to talk about them in general. So 
but they they build on each other and they are interrelated quite deeply. And so while I do have them in an order, any you know, anyone can, you know, A, pick up the book and open it anywhere, but more importantly, in their own lives, you can observe the interaction and confluence of these 12 self-discoveries. So often where there's one, there are five others, you know. Yeah, uh, and it, yeah it, it's like that in general, I think, with competencies and 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 patterns, right? So um, but um, but Leo, I have to tell you a funny story um that you know may be interesting and relevant, I think, for your audience, which is that when I worked uh, in a manufacturing company called Hawk. It was a operating a small company of Danaher, which is a very large German-based successful company. Anyway, um, I used to be the person who interfaced with uh, all of sales at a global level and field service. So those were my people. I hired them. I helped train them. I you know, ran in the same circles as them. I learned a lot from these guys. And so I want to say that emptying your head trash, I got from them, literally. I learned about that concept of emptying your head trash when I worked there at Hawk and and my my sales guys who were dear, dear friends. And anyway, I just, I, wow. I like that one a lot. So it's very relatable. You know, whether um, it's because we're having this discussion around the holidays, you know, I was reading your <laughs> 12 self-discoveries. And I said to my wife, I said, reading Michelle's work here reminds me of the 12 days of Christmas. It's like, I said, it's, it's just, it, it tells me that every single one of these yeah. could be a separate podcast. Correct. It yeah. might, it might, maybe it's something that brings us together down the road and things, but let, let's start with just a, a first you know, a few of these. I'm sure. You know, number Let's one, we are we are the common denominator. And then igniting right. your inner coach, number two. Yes. Number three, I wrote these down. Perception and, and interpretation equals your reality. Let's just stop sure. there. You know, yeah. for the first three here. What 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 are some key points that listeners should take away either you on, you know, the first one, we're the common denominator. Okay. So this is the idea that in a very real sense, there is nothing about our lives and how we perceive reality that doesn't start with us. You know, in other words, even the things that we perceive as happening outside of ourselves, right, are actually mediated by our own perception, our own brain and our bodies, right, at a sensory level. So, that's kind of the the science piece of it. But the practical piece of this, where I saw this coming into play in people's lives, is there would be times when I would meet with leaders or, or you know, individuals who I was coaching or even really myself where there might be that tendency to take a victim mentality of, oh, yes, it's always somebody else's fault. Or, you know, if it were only for this or that, or it's kind of the shoulda, but woulda, but coulda, but it, it, it's, it's this sort of mental attitude that needs to shift as we become more emotionally mature as humans that, you know, actually I am accountable and I have agency. It's, it should be empowering to think, wow, you know, just because bad things happen or unexpected things happen, which honestly happens every day we're alive, 
we have the ability to interpret and react and respond in a more skillful way. So it's it's noticing in ourselves when we might be pointing the finger outwards yeah. and we need to turn that finger right on back inwards and say, where can I have agency in this situation that I'm not enjoying for one reason or another? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the symphony conductor who it's not an issue within the orchestra. They look within themselves first. Right. Uh, yeah. Same type of thing here. But you, the, the, the second point when you talk about igniting your inner coach. Yes. I'm curious from all the work that you do. How many people have the capabilities? Sure. Your observations to be their own coach. Like yeah. you yourself are an expert in the field. You've had your own coach. Yeah, true. Uh, a lot of people can't go outside and you right. know, reach into their pocketbooks to say, I'm going to hire a coach. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? You've got, you can look inward yourself. You can Correct. look and be, you know, you can be your own inner coach first. That's Talk right. about that for a minute from your perspective. Sure. So it's, it's, you know, it's a multi-layered question you ask. So I'm going to tackle it that way. First of all, it's true. We each do have natural proclivities that either incline us more towards this ability or less towards this ability. And it hinges on a few things. How aware am I to begin with between how that kind of, how big is the delta between how I perceive myself and how others experience me or my reputation. And the greater the delta between those two things, it mm. means that person doesn't really have a grip entirely on, on, on their impact or what um, George Colreaser at IMD talks about as the person effect. You know, what is that person effect? And then in turn, what's your ripple effect or the, the, the impact you're having, the, those behaviors and how you show up? So a person who is able to look inwards and understand that connection between their actions, thoughts, how they're showing up and how they make other people feel, um, they're usually more inclined towards this ability. But working with the coach, while not everybody can afford that, it often is really important to be able to have people in your life who are your advocates, whether you call them a coach or not, to reflect back to you the things you are blind to, the things you don't see about yourself so that right. you can bring those things into sync, right? That's one element of it, Leo. Um, I'll pause in case you have questions. Yeah, There's no, another I, element. but I yeah. like the fact because you deal with so many people, Michelle, we have these blind spots. Yeah. We all have, I, you know, I've had my blind spots. And you, yep. I think the difference is, 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 is we talk about feedback as a gift, right? You want to yeah. know. Yeah. And I think what you just described there visually with the, the <laughs> gap of um, perception versus interpretation, yeah. it sounds like the wider it is that we better start reading your book because <laughs> we, got, we got to bring it into a little narrower focus here. Yeah. Am I hearing that right? I mean, it's like you, the, you are. the closer you are. that perception and interpretation come into play, probably the more we are on top of our game, understand how we're, how we're being received by others, what our reputations right. are. That's you right. know, we got a better handle on who we really are and how people really maybe interpret our value exactly. uh, to the marketplace and things like this. You're absolutely right, Leo. And I think, yeah. you know, I know you do a lot of this work with, you know, your clients as well in your own way. And um, it, it's critical. Yeah, I don't I don't care what role you have 
or level you are in any company, um, these skills are critical. You know, they are the differentiating skills because you could have a fabulous education. You could have a fabulous resume. You could be the cream of the crop, so to say, and show up and have this delta of understanding or lack of yeah. awareness. Right, and it's right. A sh- it, could, it could either be a showstopper or it could be the thing why your client chooses the other person or the other, you know, yeah. option, right? And so um, the, the other element to igniting your inner coach, and I talk about it in a fun kind of metaphorical way um, as la chispa, and that's a Spanish word for flame or spark. And so we each have drivers and motivators that intrinsically drive us means, you know, the worst thing could happen tomorrow and we're still going to be driven by this thing, right? And that's different for each person. Um, There are similarities and commonalities, of course, but it's unique. And so knowing your chispa, what what is your fire? What's that inner fire? And being able to connect again and again to that because I, I can tell you, like at one point in my life, and I think this is normal, actually, I, I had four kids and they were little at that point, And I had this big career and I lost that for myself. I, it, it, it smoldered, you know, it's like, I forgot, like, who's Michelle? What's really feeding me? What's making my life bigger, you know, and, and where is Michelle in this mix? And so I think this is the other element. If we're not feeding or don't even know what that fire is of what we want, we better go figure that out. We better go take a pause and connect with what gives us that inner strength. That's the source of the inner coach, as well as your own capacity to be aware. Give me that Spanish word again. I got to study that one. Yes. It's la chispa. La chispa? La chispa. uh, Chispa with a lot. I love it. You know, there's a, there's another adage in my uh, sales background, and I love it when you said about this inner spark, you know, like yes. I can feel it when you, you're, I can feel your spark when you talk about it. And there was an expression that said, for he to enkindle another, yes. he himself yes. must glow. That's and, exactly and that's right. That's what I believe probably attracted me when I heard your messaging and heard you deliver. I said, man, there's just so much seamless integration of connectivity mm-hmm. trying to earn the right and enhance people's comfort level mm-hmm. uh, with you your value and if you don't even have your own comfort level as you yeah. said your own self-awareness starting with you then it's never going to go it. to someone else so that's right it, some of your other key is we go up to your 12 discoveries here your fourth yeah. one what do we have influence over the fifth one yeah. you don't have to believe everything you think the sixth one, for better or worse, your focus becomes your reality. I always talk about like that. Your number six one, what you focus on is what you get. Correct. What's your What's your build off of that? Yeah, it's true. Um, it, it's funny because it also happens to be a George Lucas quote. I didn't realize that by the way until I was writing my book. But anyway, um, so look, it's it's in a very. I'll give you the science piece, and then I'll give you the practical piece. So the science of it is that we can really only focus on one thing. This multitasking thing isn't true. It's switch tasking. We're switching tasks quickly is how most people refer to multitasking, but we can actually only focus on one thing. Now, focus implies narrowed attention, right? 
But guess what? Our attention can also be broadened out to have a greater perspective. So in other words, instead of focusing on, you know, maybe let's just take, for example, negative thoughts or negative emotions or, or, or unhelpful beliefs that we have that may come up in our own mind stream. So instead of focusing on those where those become literally all we see and feel, and, and it's like as if we took a magnifying glass and, and they just get worse and worse, right? We go down this downward spiral. We could actually identify with the part of our own awareness or capacity for perception that is broad, like you're standing yeah. on a balcony, or there's a sort of spacious element where you're identifying more with the space in which these thoughts, beliefs unfold than you are with the belief. That is a powerful game changer right there, Leo. And wow. there are practices that we teach our clients to be able to identify more with the space in which things unfold. So they can say, look, there's more to that. It's just a thought. You don't have to believe everything you think, right? Coming back to another self-discovery. So you're absolutely correct. What you focus on is what you get because it's all that you see and experience in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle, as I go on, that's why I said there are 12 self-discoveries. There should be 12 podcasts. Number <laughs> seven, what are you building evidence for? Number eight, deficit, deficit-based bias. Yeah. Number nine, seeing the best in self and others. Let's let's talk about that one for a second. You bet. So it, it's related to number eight in so much as that our the wiring of the brain is, you know, by design uh, meant to help us stay alive. <laughs> so we already have a proclivity, all of us, for sort of what we would call negativity bias. We're looking for the exception, the thing, the problem, the thing that's going to, you know, the gotcha moment. So, and and our education systems and business um, ethos often train us relentlessly to see the problems. Um, and there's nothing actually wrong with it per se, but what I like to tell, in fact, it's really helpful, honestly, if, if you need to know where is a gap, it's nice to have someone who sees the gap, but if that's the only point of view you're capable of, uh, experiencing or expressing, then that's a limiting factor also. So we just sort of say, okay, great. Be aware of what your natural strength is, but in the meantime, train that muscle and capacity to see the best in self and others, because it may not come naturally. Some of us don't have that natural tendency. So we, when we practice it, then coming back to what you focus on grows, well, guess what? You focus on the gap, the problem, what's wrong, what's missing, guess what you see? That. Yeah, but if you exactly. focus and practice on what is life-giving, what is the, what is rich, what, what is awe-inspiring, where should I have gratitude? Then, then you're able to sort of see the things that you might not see if you weren't looking for them. So yeah. you're not making stuff up, by the way. This is not about Pollyanna-ish or whatever the term is. Like this isn't forced positivity. It's just, it's actually the basis for empathy and compassion. How can you uh, positively identify or, or provide any empathy or compassion for someone if you don't see a positive quality that they have, right? Yeah. These, so. these, are, these are sermons. Yeah. <laughs> these, <laughs> go to church. I mean, yeah. Literally, uh, any one of these 12 discoveries here, here, uh, here good pastor, uh, read, 
Read number I was seven. a religion major. This, I was a religion major. This is your sermon for today. <laughs> Literally. You know, as you as you finish the 12 self-discoveries here, yeah. uh, 10, emptying your head trash. I love just the way you frame that. 11, mantras, metaphors, and maps, because I'm all uh, around things like that as well. And you end it with something very near and dear to my heart mm-hmm. about happiness as a state of mind. Yeah. And I, I believe in my work as well, because a, a lot of it now is the is around significance to legacies, right? And yes, to yes. not just think about a legacy, but to live it now and to pursue joy Beautiful. in your life right now, today, mm-hmm. right? As I'm trying to do, I picture this circle, the things within that circle, Michelle, that right. bring us joy and the things outside as we're mapping things that are taking away or diluting us in our efforts to pursue joy. When you talk about happiness as a state of mind, is 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 that connecting in the same way? Is that a kissing cousin to what ah! what people would read in your book here? Absolutely, uh-huh. Leo. I think so. I think you know the the point really of this particular self discovery is you know we could insert any word for happiness. By the way, the point is is that all mental states, positive or negative, are temporary. And they are a state of mind. And we, if we practice or have the habit of fill in the blank again and again, then that is what we will experience for better or for worse, right? So if we want it to be happiness, which is one way of being in the world, especially sort of intrinsically happy, then what we need to understand is that can that we can experience that. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we won't experience other mental states, but it does call to attention that we get to decide how much we focus, how much power we give to any mental state. And instead of it being in charge of us, we can actually, there's a metaphor um, that I think fits this very well. It's, you know, in Eastern cultures, they have water buffaloes. And I spent a fair bit of time in India and Nepal, lived there for a long time. And so they lead the animal around by a nose uh, ring, like in in the nose and a rope attached to it because it's a very sensitive part of the big animal. And so I like this metaphor for ourselves, which is that if you hand that nose rope over to anybody else outside of you, they can drag you around. But guess what? Your own emotions and thoughts can drag you around. So take back the nose rope. Take back your own nose rope. And then really, you're in charge of what you experience. Wow. Well, Michelle, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. As I reference your book, this is not a book just for folks in business today. This is a book for anybody to improve their self-awareness, to pursue happiness, to look inward, to, as I would say, to unzip the zipper on your chest, to reach in, to feel what's in your heart, your soul, and to look inward. You talk about this as well in terms of some of the differences between even visible and invisible habits. It's all in here. Uh, So I I thank you. Um, I encourage everyone to get a copy of Michelle's book to what's the best way to find you, Michelle, on on your website today or encourage people to reach out to you. The name of the company is Beyond EI, and we're a dot .inc, I-N-C, so beyondei.inc, and then the book is available really in all outlets, Amazon, et cetera. It's widely published the book, so. Well, I'm getting better every day reading your work, and I encourage everybody else to read the 12 Self-Discoveries, plus there's a lot of other richness in those pages. So, Thank Michelle, you. I'm so blessed that I've gotten to know you, 
Uh, look forward to working with you down the road and thank you for imparting your wisdom and your, your, your leadership expertise and your, um, your background as a renowned educator to our audience. Much, much appreciated. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Leo. Thank you.